earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Lady of Wisdom, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, I'm going to go through a lot of things in this hour pretty quickly. So, I mean, obviously, feel free to raise your hand and raise questions, but we might also try to come back to them this afternoon. In other words, um, if it seems like I'm going a bit fast, I mean, I understand. Uh, but I, I just, there's a number of things in these articles in 7 and 8 I want to talk about in one hour. So, Why does Christ need to have grace? Well, there are reasons that we might call ontological that have to do with His person or His being. Aquinas wants to avoid moral monophysitism reducing Jesus' human acts to divine acts or his fusion of the two natures. Christ has a true human nature and this nature acts in a truly human way. No one is more human than God. In order to cooperate truly and effectively with his divine nature, his human nature and its actions are in need of grace. Right? For the human nature to cooperate with the divine nature, the human nature needs grace. Said in another way, even though the human nature of Christ is united hypostatically to his person, the divine nature of Christ utterly transcends his human nature, even infinitely. Right? The human nature is united to the divine nature, but the divine nature transcends the human nature, which is created, after all, infinitely. So the latter, the human nature, is in need of the supplement of divine grace, created grace, grace is created, so as to be a fitting instrument of His person. How can the humanity of God be a fitting instrument? By grace. Through a, uh, to permit a cooperation of Jesus' Jesus's human nature with His divine wisdom and will as God. Right? So human mind and human heart act harmoniously, felicitously in concord with His divine wisdom and divine will. Considered from the point of view of pure divine possibility, would it be possible for God to Himself a human nature that was without habitual grace? Could God unite Himself to a human nature that was unaware of its divine status and therefore incapable of cooperating with His grace? Karl Rahner says, well, no, it doesn't seem that's the case. Whether or not it's possible ontologically is certainly morally impossible. It's entirely unfitting. So, it's sensible and necessary to affirm that God would give grace uh, to uh, God. God's human nature is full of grace to permit His human nature to cooperate with uh, His divine wisdom and will. Now, there are also reasons for the sake of His mission as mediator and head of the church because He's the Savior. God took upon Himself a human nature why? For the redemption of the human race and the recapitulation of the human race. That's to say for its perfectioning. So there are two reasons and we kind of talked about this yesterday or alluded to an order between them. God, uh, the, son, the Son came into the world to atone for human sin and to reconcile us to God but also in doing so He re-perfected or restored the lost dignity of the human race. Christ is what is most perfect in creation after all. That's uncontroversial. 
And Christ is the most perfect of men and of all realities in creation. But to be the perfect mediator between God and men, Christ must have a capacity for human moral action by love. Right? Christ acts as man with charity and by obedience to God the Father in an obedience that is unique and perfect. Christ loves, Christ obeys, Christ is perfect. He's not only therefore without sin, but He also works out our salvation through a perfection of holiness that is unique. Therefore, if Christ is uniquely holy, uniquely perfect, as man, Christ as man is in need of graces in order to be the Redeemer of the human race and the new Adam. So, what are the graces of Christ? And when he comments on John 3.34, this is in the commentary on John on 3.34, Lexio 6, number 5.44, I highly recommend reading the Gospel of, uh, commentary on the Gospel of John because you'll find a lot of this stuff there in a very um, accessible biblical way. And you can read it in just short bits, you know, whatever passages you're interested in. Aquinas writes this, There is in Christ a threefold grace. And this is what he says in the Summa too, but he just says it here in one sentence. The grace of union, gratia unionis, the grace that is proper to him as a distinct person, which is habitual grace. He means here uh, the habitual grace of Jesus as a man. We have habitual grace as well. Jesus has it in the plenitude. And last of all, His grace as head of the church. His so-called capital grace. Which is uh, that of His grace of influence upon others. And he says, Aquinas says, Each of these graces Christ receives without measure. So let's just talk about those briefly and we're going to come back to them. The grace of union is the grace of Christ's human nature by virtue of the fact that it is joined hypostatically to the Son of God. It is a grace for His humanity simply to be united to the divine nature in the person of the Word. The grace of union. Obviously, as we said yesterday, only Christ has that grace. Secondly, there are the habitual graces that flow from but are distinct from the grace of union. What are the habitual graces? They are the created graces in his human soul that allow him to conform all of his human acts to the divine life that inhabits within him. The created graces, the habitual graces, are the created graces in his human soul that allow him to conform all of his human acts to the divine life that inhabits within him. Now this is tricky on the third one, the capital grace the capital grace of Christ as head of the church. This is in fact not something really distinct from His habitual grace. It's the same grace considered under a different angle or viewpoint insofar as it places uh, Christ as Savior at the service of all human beings and exalts Him as King of the angels. So Christ in His habitual grace is king of the angels. He's not the savior of the angels, but he's their king. He commands them. And he is, he, he, he uh, as man, he commands them, as a God and man. He's the king of the angels, but he's, the, and he's our savior who gives us grace. So it's from, his, it's from his habitual grace that he gives us grace. But that habitual grace, insofar as it makes him head of the church, the source of grace for others, is called his capital grace. 
we're going to go back to these. So let's turn first to question 7, article 11. Article 11. Whether the grace of Christ is infinite. Well, he qualifies it. He says it's going to, he's going to say the grace of union is infinite and the habitual grace is not. Because it's created. I answer that, as was made clear above, a twofold grace may be considered in Christ. This is the article we looked at yesterday afternoon. Article He refers back to question 2, article 10, which we looked at yesterday. A twofold grace may be considered in Christ. The first being the grace of union, as was said, above, as was said is for Him to be personally united to the Son of God, which union has been bestowed gratis on the human nature. And it's clear that this grace is infinite as the person of God is infinite. This is important. There's a kind of infinite grace given to the humanity of Jesus by the fact that that humanity is united to the person of the Word and the person of the Word is infinite. This is why Jesus will say, why Thomas Aquinas will say, and we'll see tomorrow, uh, I think, it's in one of the articles we'll look at, when Christ is crucified, the, the flesh of Christ crucified is of an infinite dignity. Jesus has, an, there's an dig, infinite dignity in the mystery of the Passion. The one who suffers has an infinite dignity. Why? Because of the grace of union. Because that humanity is united to the infinite uh, person of the Word. The second is habitual grace, (coughs) which may be taken in two ways. You can think about habitual grace in the soul of Christ first as a being, as something created. In this way, it must be a finite being, since it's in the soul of Christ as in a subject, and Christ's soul is a creature having a finite capacity. After all, Jesus is, as man, finite. He's limited as man, and his soul receives created graces that create as as being, as in their being are are, are creature creaturely. Our grace is limited is created also. Mary's grace is created. Right? We're not God. We'll never be God. It's not the point. Hence the being of grace cannot be infinite since it cannot exceed its subject. But in another sense, you'll say, it's, it is infinite in this way, not in the sense of, it's the, not in the sense of divine infinity, infinite, the divine infinity, but it may be viewed in its specific nature of grace, and thus the grace of Christ can be termed infinite in the sense that it's not limited. It has whatever can pertain to the nature of grace, and what pertains to the nature of grace is not bestowed on him in a fixed measure. What he means by this is he has created graces that are finite, but he has them without measure. We use infinite in different, wor- in wa- in different ways. Like you say, is matter subject to put to infinite transformation? Yes, you can infinitely trans- tra- change material realities, but those are finite realities. So infinite can be used in two ways, generally speaking. Uh, what he calls a negative infinite, which is God alone is infinite, and then a, what he calls a privative infinite. A thing that can be undergo manipulation or change. Anyway, this is more the sense of a primitive infinite. Um, well, it's in any case the sense of an infinite, po- uh, unlimited potency of grace. The grace that overflows onto Christ is enough grace to save the whole world and to enliven all human beings with grace. Let's turn to Article 13. It's important that Aquinas sees an order between these two graces of union and habitual grace. The latter stems from the former. Whether the habitual grace of Christ followed after the union. In other words, why is Christ 
of utter holiness, of such utter perfect holiness in his habitual grace, in the indwelling created grace of his soul. Well, it follows fittingly from the fact that it's that his human nature has been united to the Word of God. The perfection of the graces of the soul of Christ fittingly flow from uh, the fact that he is the God-Man. I'm not going to read the whole article. The article is beautiful. It's worth reading the whole article in detail. But I'm just going to skip to the last sort of third of the corpus. This is after the quote from Ezekiel, the glory of God, the, the glory of the God of Israel came in by the way of the east, and the earth shone with its with his majesty. And it, it's always interesting how he comments scripture. But anyway, he says, But the presence of God in Christ is by the union of human nature with the divine person. Hence, the habitual grace of Christ is understood to follow this union as light follows the sun. He has some interesting reflections on the Holy Ghost. That's why I'm not reading it. Because they're so interesting, we could spend like five minutes on it. And I have other things I think we really need to talk about. But after that, he then uses something we talked about yesterday. Then he says, Thirdly, the reason of this union can be taken from the end of grace, since it is ordained to acting rightly, and action belongs to the suppositum of the individual. This is something we talked about with Sarah David yesterday. Something I wrote on the board. Right? The first... The first act of the person is to subsist, and the second act is their operations. And he says that God becomes man and takes on a human nature in view of human actions. So the grace of union is first, uniting the human nature to himself, and then the grace of habitual graces, which are the graces of operation in the soul of Christ, acting under the aegis of the Holy Spirit and the graces of God. Hence, action and consequence... Hence, action and in consequence, grace ordaining thereto presuppose the hypostasis which operates. Right? To have an action, you have to have an actor. Now, the hypostasis did not exist in the human nature before the union, as is clear from question 4, article 2. Therefore, the grace of union proceeds in thought, habitual grace. In other words, it's not like you ever had a man, Jesus, and then he became God. Right, you didn't have Jesus born, and then after about you know three years, he, the hypostatic union happened. That's absurd. From the first instant of conception, it's God made man. You have the hypostatic union, and then from the hypostatic union flow certain actions. Okay, that was just to try to say there are these two distinct graces, and there's an order between the two. Now let's go back to habitual grace. I'm, I've really said all I'm going to say right. In, I think in this you know hour or probably at all now about uh, the grace of union. Let's go on because I talked about it a little yesterday afternoon. Let's talk. Let's talk more now about the habitual graces. This is a little bit more. Um, well, I think here we get into some very interesting questions. You know, what is Jesus? What is what are Jesus' graces as man? How is he like us in the order of grace, and how is he a little distinct from us? So let's go back to Article 1. Question 7, Article 1. Okay, three things about habitual grace. First of all, this grace is created, as I've already underscored. Uh, I mean, all grace is created. Think about what we mean to say grace is... Un- Eastern Orthodox often refuse the idea that grace is created. 
we have a problem there ecumenically. But think about the consequences. Say, say you receive grace. Huh? Let's just say for the sake of argument, some of you have received grace. Okay. Let's uh, let's say. Uh, <laughs> oh come on. So you know you got a little humor. All right. So let's you know say for the sake of argument, you know that a person who's in a state of grace sins because we know we can sin, right? Counsel Trent. Uh, it's predestination doesn't work like you know making us a robot of God. So and let's say a person who's in a state of grace sins and loses grace. Like they, they kill the life of charity in them. Or even worse, they lose not only charity but faith. You know, the Christian who loses their faith. And then, of course, and we'll make it a happy story, they come back and they receive grace again later. You know, they, they cooperate. It's like a Bernanos novel, like George Bernanos, you know, somebody who's fallen away, you know, is reconciled on their deathbed. It's wonderful. Some dramatic, saintly ending to their life. Okay, sure, fine. But every time there's a change there from you know, receiving grace at baptism, losing grace, wandering off into the world, coming back into the state of grace. I mean, if grace is only uncreated, then one or two things are going to be the case. Either that we're destroying something in God every time we sin, or adding something to God every time we're in a state of grace. Or those acts are simply, says it were, God's uncreated reality sort of shifts in and out of our lives and there's no way for us to appropriate it because we can't be acting on God or being acted upon by God so grace is something really exterior to us it's just God and we can't add or, or subtract anything from it so it's not really our action so we're just purely passive and therefore that whole question of whether I'm in state of grace or not is meaningless there's big problems if you try to say grace is only uncreated it's absurd and it won't work you know, you know that I'm just asserting that rather uh, rapidly but it's something to think about what would it mean to say that grace is un only uncreated? Now, God gives us created grace in view of what? Us. Uh, un what's called uncreated grace, which is to say the inhabitation of the Holy Spirit and the Word in our souls to be inhabited by the Holy Trinity. And heaven is the most ultimate expression of receiving grace of the vision in view of union with God, which is the ultimate uncreated grace, just to see God as He is, to know God. Well, in Christ then, there's a created grace, created graces, that are habitual. Why do we call them habitual? Well, because they act on potencies of the soul, the powers of the soul. You and I are capable of many things, right? Carpentry. Uh, I'm thinking about actions of Christ. Carpentry, you know, preaching, uh, speculation, whatever. Right? But we don't do all those things all the time. Right. Joseph got up and he was a carpenter during some points of the day. So, if God's going to sanctify the human being, the human being works through habitual actions. Habitual meaning not at every moment, but from time to time based on virtues, capacities. So, habitual graces sanctify us in our human mode of working through, through things in a habitual way. Okay, so, created graces that are habitual, that act, that allow the human being to operate in a regular habitual way in, in conformity with the will of God. In Article 1, he'll talk about why there is a fittingness to the plenitude of Christ's grace, His habitual grace. Whether in the soul of, of Christ there was any habitual grace. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, which Spirit indeed is said to be in man by habitual grace, as was said above. I answer, 
It is necessary to suppose habitual grace in Christ for three reasons. First, on account of the union of his soul with the word of God. And this is interesting. For the nearer any recipient is to an inflowing cause, the more does it partake of the influence. Right? I mean, the closer you put your hand to the fire, the warmer it gets. Now, the influx of grace is from God, according to Psalm, would that be 83, 12. The Lord will give grace and glory. And hence it was most fitting that his soul should receive the influx of divine grace. Now, this is an interesting argument. He's saying the, man, the humanity of Jesus is so close to the source of grace by union with the Word that it should fittingly receive the most grace. And that's kind of analogous with Mary because she's the mother of God. She's close to God in a way that no one else is. It's fitting that she should receive a plenitude of grace first among all creatures. Secondly, on account of the dignity of this soul whose operations were to attain so closely to God by knowledge and love. That's the operational unity we've been talking about. To which it is necessary for human nature to be raised by grace. Right? Christ's human knowledge and love is uh, uh, attaining um, closely to the very deity, to the wisdom and will of God that he has by virtue of his divine nature. Thirdly, on account of the relation of Christ to the human race, for Christ as man is the mediator of God and men, as is written in 1 Timothy 2.5. So it is it behooved him to have grace that would overflow upon others. And this is John 1.16. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace, grace upon grace. Right? Well, that's very coherent and it's very well stated. Um... Now, okay, so what's the payoff? You know, what does it mean to say Christ has habitual grace? Right. Article 2, whether in Christ there were virtues. Okay. It's going to affect his human behavior, his human action, his human knowledge, his human love. Um, I'm not going to read the article, but I just want to make two points briefly about the... Uh, he's going to say uh, here that Christ had infused virtues. We know that... In human beings, we have natural ends and objects that we pursue in our moral action. And um, we need those to be elevated or informed by grace so that we can pursue actions fitting uh, to the life of the children of God. So, for example, we're all capable of the standard example, you know, Aquinas. We're all capable of the virtue of temperance. But there's such a thing as a Christian exercise, the virtue of temperance. For example, to fast which is not an ordinary, well, you might argue that it's a kind of natural religious action. Religious people fast, even you find fasting outside of uh, Christianity and Judaism. But it's been elevated to now fast for the sake of a specifically Christian object or intention to be united more deeply to the Passion of Christ on Friday. You know, or to remember. So the, the mystery of faith has come and, and formed that normal religious moral action of fasting with a deeper specification or object to fast to be in union with the mystery of Christ by faith, hope, and love. That's the infused virtues that allow that natural action to be elevated to a supernatural end. Okay? So he's saying here Christ had the infused virtues in abundance. So you're going to find in Christ a unique temperance, a unique justice, a unique prudence, and a unique courage. 
he's going to be more perfectly virtuous in all of these ways because of this plenitude of grace. He's going to be the, the moral exemplar of the cardinal virtues. Right? No one is more just, no one is more prudent, no one is more temperate, no one is more courageous. It has more uh, a sort of a measured, profound fortitude. Right? Think about when the guard slaps Christ, says, is that any way to speak to the high priest? And he shows this amazing fortitude and self-control and says, if what I say is true, why don't you speak to that? Right? If, you know, there's no vindication, spirit of revindication. It's his self-mastery of his passions is unique. Okay. Um, he also just uh, now. I'm going to just comment the articles briefly. I'm not going to read them because it would take too long. He's going to ask, in Christ was there faith in his intellect? Now, I'm going to spend the whole next hour talking about this issue of Christ's knowledge. But his answer is no. Just to briefly give a little advertisement here. Why is this a problem? problem? Well, because does God made man believe that he's God? Or does he know he's God? Right? And if he has faith, who is he believing? See, you have faith, you have faith in, someone, in someone else. He's like, Prophet Jeremiah receives revelation, but he believes the revelation in faith. Jeremiah has to believe in God, and it's quite a drama. Jeremiah's very interested, tells about the drama of, you know, they put me down a well, I was mistreated, look, you know, if God, if this is how you treat your friends, I'd hate to see how you treat your enemies. We know that line of thought, right? But that's because it's a little bit of drama, because you have to have faith in God. And that's more the story of our life. And in its own way, it's the story of Mary's life. But... You can't have God believing that He's God. That's kind of inappropriate. I mean, at least that would be the kind of argument. We're going to spell that out a little bit more and then talk about, well, if He doesn't have faith, what's going on? Because in His human mind, He's got to have something then superior to faith. What is that? He asks if there was hope. And He says, well, He knows the outcome of life by a higher form of understanding. So, strictly speaking, uh, He's already... Jesus enjoys the happiness of, in his human mind of, of knowledge of God. He doesn't have to hope for his salvation from another. Part of this has to do with believing he's the Savior and not someone who's being saved by someone else. Right? We're being saved by Christ. We hope in him. But if Jesus is himself hoping for his salvation from someone else, we're going to have other, we're going to have new problems theologically. Right? He knows he's he. He knows that He is come into the world to die for our sins and to give us uh, salvation. To act as the mediator of our salvation. So there's something superior, in a way, to hope. I'm going to come back to those things next hour. But then to move on to questions, uh, Articles 5 and 6, which are very interesting. He talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know what grace primarily is, right? I mean, it's you've, you've uh, maybe had this with Father, Reverend Father Corbett, but you have you, you have graces, you have habitual and actual. Now, actual graces kind of make you go up. You're on a plateau. You got habitual graces, and boom, you 
get actual grace and you move up. You know, one day you're, you're walking around, you're working your nine to five, and one day, you know, God says, boom, you have a religious vocation. You know, Aquinas says that um, uh, the calling to religious life is the result of a mission of the Holy Spirit. Which um, I mean, he says. I mean, he he says that the grace behind a religious vocation is, and I mean, he he places extremely elevated grace on the part of God for each person who is called to religious life. But anyway, under these graces, habitual and actual, you have basically the theological virtues, faith, hope, charity. Then you have the infused virtues, which allow your natural virtues, moral, intellectual, and religious, artistic, all those, to be at the service of the theological virtues. And then you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what do those do? gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, allow you to exercise the theological virtues in a, in a more divine mode. They proportion you more profoundly to act less according to your own natural inclinations or to stretch your nature to go off into the life of God more deeply. So that's why in the saints where the, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are really working I mean there are more ordinary modes in which they work in all Christian believers who are in a state of grace. As long as we're in state of grace, we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes they work in on us in a more extraordinary way. I mean, that's the case in some sense for people who are in religious life. Um, but it's interesting to see... Oh, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of a very obvious example. Well, St. Francis says poverty. Radical poverty. You know, this rad- like brute, brutal poverty. You can see the gift of fear. You know, the guy who wouldn't own anything for fear of having anything that he would possess that would go before God, pass before God. It's a more, it's a more ultimate exercise of the gift of fear, which, is the beat, which leads to the beatitude of the poor. And there's seven gifts of the Holy Spirit that lead to the seven beatitudes, according to the, the custom tradition. Now, Aquinas would say, in a Christ you don't have faith and hope. Of course, you have a plenitude of charity. You have the, a plenitude of the infused virtues, and you have a plenitude of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Right? Boom. Those three things. And you have them habitually. Now, when he d- he's going to get rid of these, but he's going to give other things here. Infuse science and beatific vision, which we're going to talk about in the next hour. <clears throat> um... And he does say this gift of fear in the soul of Christ. Did Christ fear God? Yeah. He says there's a littleness in the soul of Christ. There's a humility in the soul of Christ. Because he, as man, is aware of, of the, the, the divine splendor and the dignity of God, the deity, in a way that no other person, no other human being is. So there's a, even though he's God-made man, in his humanity there's a littleness. There's a humility of self-effacement, of modesty, of, of, of uh, a humble charity that is, is unique. There's an interesting um, anecdote from Bernadette from Lourdes. I, I didn't read this, but a friend of mine who was uh, a friend of mine who's uh, uh, told me about it that Bernadette said that. When she said to her in the grotto, I am the Immaculate Conception, her voice trembled because she was talking about herself. 
which is an interesting thing to think about a beatified person trembling with fear of God in heaven he says in another place uh, will there be fear in heaven the gift of fear and he says yes because it leads into deep, the deeper adoration of God not in the sense of terror he, he says it won't be great, any, any fear or terror of God but in the sense of a, a holy um, awareness of the inexhaustible majesty of God that will lead the soul into a, a sense of its own of, um, littleness before the splendor of God anyway um, and then it, article 7 were there gratuitous graces in Christ I forgot to list that on the board that would be a fourth one gratuitous graces when he uses that phrase he means graces that are charismatic graces graces that are for other people these other graces what I've listed are the sanctifying graces they're the graces that matter in the long haul gratuitous graces are the graces that you're given for the sake of other people like you know you go off and preach a homily and you prepare the homily and then you forget what you're going to say and you end up saying something completely different off the cuff and then somebody comes up to you a year later and says you know I converted because of something you said last year and they tell you and well lo and behold it was what just kind of came in your mind that's a completely gratuitous grace (coughs) that's that's not a story from my life that's a story from a uh, another Dominican but that's um in fact, the, the woman entered religious life because of something he said when he was trying to struggle to find the words in a Carmel in France. But, um, I mean, obviously she was going to enter religious life for other reasons too, probably, but it, that was the moment where, boom, things came together. It's very strange. Uh, but everybody experiences some things like that when you go off and preach. Anyway, there's um, charismatic miracles, obviously. You know, the saints who can... Uh, pray over someone and they're healed Christ has those in superabundance right he can heal now but he's going to have them in a habitual way he can do it at will which is different from anybody else uh, and then he talks about there's a gift of prophecy does Christ prophesy well yes he's the, he's um, He says actually technically he's more than a prophet. He says Christ is not a prophet because he's not receiving revelation. He has in himself the plenitude of revelation. He's the because he because he sees God face to face. But then we're going to come back to that. Okay, um, good. We have some time. I want to get to the one of the most important articles in the Summa. Oh no, let, let me. Okay, no. Since I have let's spend a few more minutes on uh, question twelve. Uh, article 12 question 7 article 12 just to finish off this, this section on grace whether the grace of Christ w- could increase now there, there's I suppose this is something of a disputed question in modern theology you know there's people who will say for example Christ had a sort of nascent since he was the son of God but this increased you know so Christ uh, grows in understanding and grace as time goes on. Not just he obviously he developed in human understanding, but that in, in fact his, he received new graces of prophecy. You know, as time goes on or whatever. You know, and this is an interesting question for Aquinas. And I, I'm personally, um, I, I'm I'm a little torn on this, but I, I think I think that this is the way I would go. Is with, with what Saint Thomas says uh, here. Um, Christ has the plenitude of habitual grace from the beginning. Now, remember, habitual grace is for habits, and habits can be in potency or in act. So, what Aquinas is going to argue here is, 
from the beginning, Christ is able to do the things he does later throughout his life, at least in the sense that in his soul there resides the plenitude of holiness, of grace. But that as he then his life develops humanly and as his ministry unfolds, he then performs acts at particular junctures and times. So that when Christ, for example, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, raises the dead, he's never done that before the first time he does it. But he had the capacity before. What is unfolds when he does it is he, he manifests the holiness that resides in him the power that resides in him. So for Aquinas, what is happening is you have the gradual manifestation of what's already been there, always been there in potency. Let's just read, I'm not going to read the corpus, you can read that, uh, you know, I would encourage you to read it eventually, but I'm just going to read response to objection one. Uh, no, sorry, response to objection three. Now, the, 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 the objection is this. says, um, It's written in Luke 2.52 that the child Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and grace with God and men. Therefore, the grace of Christ could increase. Well, it's interesting because, you know, it's a scriptural passage to deal with. That, that pa- I have a whole lecture from, during the year on that passage because you, you have the history of how the fathers of the church and scholastics commented. It's extremely interesting to look at how they, people go through it. But, Aquinas says, anyone may increase in wisdom and grace in two ways. First, inasmuch as the very habits of wisdom and grace are increased. <clears throat> and in this way, Christ did not increase. Secondly, as regards the effects, i.e., inasmuch as they do wiser and greater works. Now notice he is saying he did increasingly great works. He did act in increasingly wise ways. But he's also saying he had the capacity for it hidden in the depths of his soul from the beginning because of the plenitude of grace. So it's an interesting claim. It's saying from the beginning the constitution, the potencies are there. Everything's given. But he is going to grow in the sense that he's going to perform greater and greater acts of wisdom and grace. And in this way, Christ increased in wisdom and grace even as an age since in the course of time he did more and more perfect works to prove himself true man both in the things of God and in the things of man. I mean, he lived a truly human life. He did greater and greater works as he went on in life. He increased in, in actions of wisdom and actions of grace. But he has some potencies that are constituted from the beginning. That those things, And of course, the ultimate action of manifesting the grace of God is going to be the crucifixion and the resurrection. You know, that's, and so it's, in, it's interesting how, that, uh, how he, in a nuanced way, sees an unfolding happening. Okay, let's move to this very, very important question. Actually, I want to try to read to question 8, Article 1, and Article 3. These, these are, it may not seem apparent, but these are, you know, it, it's, you can't just talk about three hinges in the sumo because there's so many articles that are hinges. But there's places you hit kind of hinges where, where a lot of the doctrine of Aquinas turns, like a door turns on hinges, you know. And, and question 8, Article 1, and Article 3 are hinges because... There are places you see how all the doctrine of the church and of the sacraments depends on the doctrine of Christ. And where in Christ those mysteries hinge. 
Christ's created grace as head of the church. We've talked just now about His habitual grace. Now we're going to talk about that habitual grace under another aspect, which is how it is uh, becomes our grace. How Christ's habitual grace is the capital grace, the grace of Christ as head of the church that He then transmits to us as God and man, making Him the mediator of salvation in the order of grace. So it's the place you get sort of from why God became a man to why Christ is head of the church to how Christ saves us in and through the acts of His human life which we're going to talk about uh, more this afternoon uh, and tomorrow and how He then saves us as the glorified Christ through the activity of the life of the church and the sacraments. And question 8, Article 3 is about how He's the Savior of all human beings the universality of His salvation. There's only one Savior, and that is the Savior of all men, Jesus Christ. Okay. Is Christ the head of the church? On the contrary, it is written in Ephesians 1.22, and He has made Him head over all the church. It's important to realize that for Augustine, He's, Augustine, St. Augustine's already raised the question, is Christ head of the church as God or as man? And Augustine has great authority in the Middle Ages. And his answer is, as man, he is head of the church. So he's head of the church in his humanity. Uh, he means by this, when he says, he, and he links this to the question of mediation. When he says, Christ is the mediator in First Timothy, it says, Christ is the mediator between God and man, the man. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Augustine says, ah, you see, it's, it's the humanity that mediates our relationship. We, we have a mediated relationship to God through the humanity of Jesus Christ. We come into God's presence, or we enter into friendship with God through the mediation of the Savior, the man, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. I answer that as the whole body is termed one mystic body from the likeness of the natural body of a man which in diverse members has diverse acts as the apostle teaches so likewise Christ is called head of the church from a likeness with the human head so it's a metaphor in which we may consider three things order, perfection, and power now, I mean this is my interpretation but I basically say he's going to talk about exemplarity ecclesiological omnipresence and effects that's to say Christ is man is the example of, of what it is to be human. He's the most perfect in the order of, of salvation. Secondly, that he's present in all the activity of the life of the church. And thirdly, that he is the source of all the effects of grace. That's what I read on these three things. But anyway, here's the three things. Order. I, I'm calling this exemplarity. Indeed, for the head is the first part of man beginning from the higher part. And hence it is that every principle is usually called a head according to Ezekiel. At every head of the way thou hast set up a sign of thy prostitution. So, I mean, Christ is the head of the order of the church insofar as he's the example, the lead example of, of I mean, the, the, he's first in the order of perfe uh, perfection in a way. Or maybe I'm changing... Oh, well, I may be confused, sisters. I may be, I may be changing my my notes. I have three things, but I, I, originally they may be based on a different order of reading the, the three um, names he gives here. Perfection, inasmuch as in the head dwell all the other senses, both. You know, this is what I yeah. Perfection, inasmuch as the head in the head dwell all the other senses, both interior and exterior. Whereas in the other members, 
there is only touch. And hence it said, the aged and honorable, he is the head. In other words, wherever you have grace, you have the activity, of, you have the presence of Christ's grace. Right? The head, he's saying, is present in all the members, or the members are somehow dependent on the head. It's like the, the image in John, I am the vine and you are the branches. Wherever you have the branches, you have the vine. Right? Wherever you have the members, you have the activity of the head. So wherever we have grace, we have our grace from Christ. He's the channel of all grace. He's, the, he's first of all, the, the perfect exemplar of the perfection of grace. Secondly, He's the, the channel of all grace. And thirdly, He says there's power. Because the power and movement of the other members to, together with the direction of them in their acts is from the head by reason of the sensitive and motor power they're ruling. Hence, the ruler is called the head of a people. Now these three, and so that's the notion of effects. You know, I mean, Christ acts in us. But He's the first agent. You know, when we receive grace, it's independence on the, the, uh, the capital grace of Christ, the activity of Christ. Now these three things belong spiritually to Christ. First, on account of His nearness to God, His grace is the highest and first, exemplarity. Though not in time, since all have received grace on account of His grace. Second, He had perfection... I'm skipping down. Second, He had perfection as regards the fullness of all graces. That's what I'm talking about, ecclesiological omnipresence. Where you have grace in the church, Christ's grace is Christ's grace. All grace comes through Christ. Thirdly, he has the power of bestowing grace on all the members of the church. According to John 1.16, of his fullness we have all received. Effects. God, Christ is the source of our grace by, by his will. He sends grace. You know, he could, he could give St. Dominic the grace at some point uh, of his mission or of his preaching and to the Albigensians and whatnot. And thus it is plain that Christ is fittingly called the head of the church. Now, the replied objection one is very important here because it's where Aquinas begins to talk about the instrumentality of the sacred humanity of Jesus. And this is a very important theme we'll try to come back to this afternoon. I think the objection has to do with the fact that, well, all grace comes from the Holy Spirit, so it couldn't come from Jesus Christ as man. To give grace or the Holy Ghost belongs to Christ as... I don't know, it's talking about Jesus as God, so anyway, it can't come from... In other words, I think the idea is, well, let's just read it. It would seem that it does not belong to Christ as man to be head of the church, for the head imparts sense and motion to the members. Now, spiritual sense and motion, which are by grace, are not imparted to us by the man Christ... Because Augustine says, not even Christ as man, but but only as God bestows the Holy Ghost. Therefore, it does not belong to him as man to be head of the church, right? I mean, he's head of the church as God, because he's the source of grace as God. It's a good objection. Replied objection. To give grace or the Holy Ghost does belong to Christ as he is God, authoritatively. Now he makes a distinction between God giving grace authoritatively versus instrumentally. But instrumentally, it belongs also to him as man, inasmuch as his manhood is the instrument of his Godhead. Now he gets this term, instrumentum, it comes from the Greek fathers who use the word in Greek, organon, which you get the word organ. And organs are the instrument of the body in a certain way for its health. And the great father of this thinking of Christ's humanity as the organon or instrument of his divinity is none other than Cyril of Alexandria. 
You already have a little phrase of it, I think, in Athanasius. But Cyril really develops this notion that Jesus' humanity is the instrument of his divinity. And then John Damascene picks it up and develops it at length. If you read John Damascene's On the Orthodox Faith, which is beautiful spiritual reading, by the way. I mean, it's, it's dense. You have to think about it a bit. But, you know, I mean, it's not... I mean, it's not like reading Cassian. It's not spiritual counsels. But if you read John Damascene's uh, third book on Christ, there's some very profound mystical theology of the person of Jesus. And John Damascene develops at length this notion of Jesus as humanity as the instrument of his divinity. And Thomas Aquinas read carefully this book, which had been translated into Latin, of John Damascene, the Orthodox Way. And from it, he takes this Greek Christological notion that goes all the way back to Cyril of Alexandria, that Jesus as humanity is the instrument of his divinity. And he develops this theme much more strong, much more powerfully than any Western thinker had to before him because he studied the Greek fathers more carefully. The other thing he does that no one had ever done before him in the East or the West is he develops the notion of the sacraments as instruments of grace. Instruments of grace. And that's what you'll hopefully see a little bit next week. Nobody had ever said that. He had the audacity to kind of develop that whole line of thinking. That the Eucharist and baptism and such, that they're the instruments of God's grace. But here he talks about the, the source of all that instrumentality of baptism and the Eucharist of the ministers of Christ, etc., is this more fundamental primary instrumentality, which is the instrumentality of the sacred humanity of Jesus. And hence, this is really very interesting, by the power of the Godhead to which it was united, His actions were beneficial, His human actions. That is to say, by causing grace in us, both meritoriously and efficiently. Now, this is also, he just says it in passing, but it's really important. Okay, there's two things to say there. First of all, what all that Christ does and suffers as man will be uh, instrumental for our redemption by virtue of its unity with the divine power. So when Christ suffers, or when he walks on the shores of Galilee, or whatnot, or heals, all of those things not only show us his perfect manhood and his deep uh, compassion and charity as man but they also are united to his divine power and they benefit us they, act, they are beneficial for our salvation he says meritoriously and efficiently now those are two different things meritoriously we could call ascending graces and um, efficiently we call descending graces this is later Thomas theologians but this is a nice way of thinking about it why? because when it says he, he, he acts as man for us meritoriously, that means he offers up his acts, actions on our behalf to the Father. They ascend towards the Father on our behalf. Right? There where we have fallen into disobedience or waywardness or alienation from God, he acts in charity as man and in intimacy with God and merits for us through obedience what we, would have, uh, what we cannot merit for ourselves. Right? It's ascending in the sense it's as man he's acting as a mediator bringing us up before the Father. Uh, efficiently is descending because through Him, in His humanity, He's a channel of grace that's coming from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit, through the sacred humanity of Jesus. So when Christ um, says to the good thief, this day you will be with me in paradise, He's effectuating something. When He says, I will it be healed, He's effectuating something. And it's coming down as it were, from God descending through the channel of His divine, of His sacred humanity as an instrument for our salvation. So He's both ascending 
as it were, are bringing things up before the Father as a meritorious human subject, human agent. You know, as a, Christ as man mediates for us by praying to the Father. And He's also then receiving the graces, as it were, you might call the graces He merited in his, in his, through His obedience and His life and His death. He's receiving those graces uh, as man into His habitual grace, which is, becomes our grace. He's the, he's the channel. He then will, he wills us to receive grace of, um, that comes from God. Alright, we won't get to whether Christ is the head of all men, but what he shows here, and I'll just say it in a, briefly, is that there's four ways Christ can be the head of, of someone. Can be, there's four ways you can be in the church. Um, first, by faith. So he's the head of all those who believe in him, but not all have charity. So even those who are in dead in, in dead faith, you know, who believe but don't practice, or who believe but don't live in accord with the, the precepts of Christ, he's still the head of. But they're in tenuous position. They they're not really living in, in a deeper friendship with him. Secondly, by those who not only believe in him but also have love him, charity, friends of God. Thirdly, by virtue of those who uh, have passed on to the perfection of union with Him in the beatific vision, the saints and the angels. And He is definitely the head of the, of, of, of the Church of Heaven in a, in a unique way. And um, fourthly, uh, of those who are only potentially His members, not yet His members. And of those He then distinguishes two kinds. Those who will eventually belong to Him, say for example sinners who he will eventually redeem or those who will ultimately refuse to belong to him so he says he's the head of all men some by faith some by faith and charity some by virtue of the beatific vision and some only potentially and among those who are potentially members some will ultimately belong to him as members of his body and some will ultimately refuse to belong to him but in, in, in any case he, in any event he is the head of all men Okay. Well, uh, we galloped through a lot of stuff there, and I know it's a lot of things, but uh, thank you for your patience. We'll try to meet again in an hour. Our help is in the name of the Lord.